If we're honest, we don't know. And we're all just doing the best we can in this challenging time. The basic tenets of pre-hospital care still remain the same and are still really important. This is a disease that's treated by oxygen. So BLS care first. Take care of your patients. Do no harm. If they're sick, take them to the hospital and treat the patient that's in front of you. Don't worry about treating the pandemic. Stand by for your base. Welcome to another EMS Cast special edition. I'm your host, Ross Warpit. My co-host, Matt Mendez, brought back EMS physician extraordinaire and COVID response specialist, Dr. Whitney Barrett, to discuss some of the pressing questions you, the pre-hospital professionals, have. Thanks to all the listeners that wrote in with really great questions. I really enjoyed researching these and listening to Matt pick Whitney's brain. That being said, you're going to find the common theme of this episode is, frankly, we just don't know. This is a brand new virus that has never been seen before. There are no randomized controlled studies on the topic. There are no textbook chapters that have been written. There are no experts who have spent years of their lives focusing on this disease. There are, however, a lot of opinions and theories on social media. But the truth of the matter is nobody really knows. We're all just trying to do the best we can with the anecdotal experiences of others. And for the time, the experience of those that came before us is the best we have. But be wary of what you hear and read. We are not going to know the real answer to these questions until years after this is all over. So what we're going to try to do today is highlight our gaps in knowledge and describe what is emerging as suggestions for best practices, despite there being little data to support them. If possible, I will highlight where these theories originated from and what data we do have, if any, to support them. And as always, make sure you're following the guidance of your local protocols medical director. Welcome back, Dr. Barrett. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. We got a lot of questions from our last podcast with you. A lot of people wrote in and wanted to know a lot of things. So we figured we'd just invite you back a lot more informally and just throw some questions at you. Perfect. We'll see how it goes. What are some of the potential surge plans that our current system here in Denver has in place for if call volumes skyrocket versus maybe other things you've heard other institutions or cities or governments are doing? The thing that makes a lot of this challenging is not only is it preparing for possible increased volumes of patients, it's also preparing for decreased numbers of providers if there are providers that are getting sick. Some of the things in terms of just managing patient volumes, there are a number of things that not just Denver has done, but places all across the country have done in terms of changing sort of the guidelines for what paramedics can do. Here, obviously, we call them paramedic-initiated refusals. Um, They come by different names across the country. But identifying what are hopefully low-risk patient populations for having bad outcomes and allowing the paramedics to essentially refuse transport for those patients. So that is something that has been rolled out multiple places with the idea that that will at least decrease the number of patients that are being transported. It might not decrease the number of calls you go on, but might decrease the number of patients being transported. Other things that can occur in as you have escalating levels of, of surge, 
most of which fall under what, what are called the crisis standards of care that uh, different states enact and, and outline for their own local agencies include things like dispatchers not actually dispatching ambulances to certain types of calls, again, trying to identify these really low-risk patient groups, and then not sending an ambulance, but instead linking them to some other sort of care, like a nurse line or giving them other resources. Um, And then sort of beyond that, you can start thinking about sort of withholding care that otherwise would be considered standard in, in circumstances where if your call volumes are completely overwhelming and you have certainly high-risk groups of people like people in cardiac arrest and probably have poor prognosis or are likely to have poor outcomes to actually withhold care or modify the care that you provide so that you're not transporting these patients or you're not working them for as long. Um, When you start talking about things like that, I think it starts to get really uncomfortable for lots of reasons. But these are the things that people are looking at and, and putting into place across the country. Can we go back and talk about the paramedic-initiated refusal protocol and um, maybe some of the criteria that are common to the protocols around the country? Sure. And I've, I've looked at a handful of these different protocols. Most of them are very similar. And whether they're called just a no-transport protocol or paramedic-initiated refusal, um, most of them have some category that's in, related to age. And so, like for us, it's an age less than 60. I've seen age less than 65. Uh, their history has to be consistent with some sort of infectious viral syndrome. You want to catch just the people that you're worried about as having potentially coronavirus. And then there's vital sign requirements. For us, it's a respiratory rate that's normal, right? So between eight and 20 breaths per minute, a normal oxygen saturation greater than 90% here at altitude. I know in some places that's going to be greater than 92 or 94%. A heart rate that's less than 110. And then a systolic blood pressure that's age appropriate if you're dealing with pediatrics or greater than 90 for sort of all-comer adults. Additionally, you have to not have any of those high-risk comorbidities that we've learned about with COVID. These conditions include coronary artery disease, chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease requiring dialysis, those with liver disease, and individuals who are immunosuppressed either from a medical disease such as immune deficiencies or poorly controlled HIV, or those who are immunosuppressed secondary to medications such as prolonged courses of steroids, cancer treatment, organ transplant recipients on immune suppression, and those suffering from an autoimmune disorder for which they are taking immune suppressing medications. There was a recent report released by the CDC, which reviewed nearly 8,000 cases here in the U.S. This article is consistent with initial research out of China and highlights these associated risk factors for developing severe illness from COVID-19 infection. This preliminary study found that nearly 80% of those admitted to an ICU had a comorbid condition such as these just mentioned. There were not enough patients to determine a case fatality rate related to comorbid conditions. However, 94% of the deaths in this study had an underlying comorbid condition. The patient has to be able to make their own decisions and understand what it is that you're telling them you're not going to do for them. And then they also need to be able to understand what you're telling them to do, which you should then be telling them you have to stay home and isolate yourself until you're without symptoms. And then their symptoms need to also not be severe. So if you have somebody that might have meet all of these vital sign requirements, but if they stand up, they get to Kipnik to 30 and they're horribly or profoundly short of breath, uh, then that's going to kick them out of the category that allows them to be 
part of this non-transport or paramedic-initiated refusal group. If all of the criteria to make them low risk are met, then they can, depending on the way that the system phrases it or builds it, they can either be a refusal sort of by protocol or it can be an offered refusal and if the patient still wants to go, then they can still go, or it can be a contact to medical direction or whatever uh, might make the most sense in their system. One of the other things we got a lot of questions about was what's apparently being talked a lot about in the media, the R-not value. I admittedly had to Google this and teach myself what this was. Yeah, Matt, I don't think many outside the epidemiology world were too familiar with the R-not value prior to this. To put it simply, though, the r naught value is a measurement of how many people you would expect one sick person to infect. There are various algorithms to attempt to determine this, and thus you will likely see different numbers out there. The simple concept of this is, though, that if the r naught value is less than one, meaning the average infected individual will be expected to infect less than one other person, this means eventually the number of new cases will slowly decline until the disease dies out. However, if the r naught is 1, well then, on average, each infected individual will go on to infect one other person. Under this scenario, the disease will likely reach a steady state where the number of new cases each day will remain relatively unchanged and steady. However, if an r naught is greater than 1, say it's 2, then on average, each infected individual will go on to infect 2 people. And those two people will then infect a total of four people. And those four people will infect a total of eight people. And those eight, 16, and so on and so on. This exponential increase of cases is what leads to an epidemic. The reported R-naught of COVID-19 is thought to be somewhere between 1.5 to 3, depending on what source you read. The goal of social distancing is to bring the R-naught value closer to 1 thus to slow the spread of this disease over a longer period of time as to not overwhelm our medical system. Now, this is a very simplified explanation and is actually not as black and white. And Whitney puts it best when she says, I think I've seen lots of different numbers associated with COVID as far as what that R not is, which then leads me to think that we probably don't really know for sure. And, and it then makes that number a little less valuable when I'm thinking about it. A lot of that, in my mind, can actually just get really confusing as we're trying to interpret this barrage of information that is sort of tossed at us all the time related to COVID. So moving back to something that may be more helpful when considering our care for the patients in the back of the ambulance. Is there an O2 flow rate that becomes an aerosolizing risk with a cannula or mask? So if I have you on four liters of a nasal cannula, am I safe? And then all of a sudden, if you're six liters, am I now aerosolizing COVID all over the place? I think there's a lot about this we don't know. Depending on what you read, some people will say six liters is sort of that cutoff for the nasal cannula. As far as that to be considered low flow nasal cannula and above that is going to be high flow nasal cannula, which then puts you at increased risk. But I would totally be lying to you if I were to say that this is based on really robust data and people who have studied it really thoroughly. It's just sort of our, our best educated guess at this point. What about when it comes to high-flow nasal cannulas versus CPAP? Is there any difference in aerosolization between the two or benefit to COVID patients between the two? From a clinical standpoint, if you look in the literature, is all over the board and has made this question one of the most common in the emergency department and I think also in the in the field. What we think is that 
there's some amount of risk with high flow nasal cannula. You probably decrease that risk if you put a surgical mask over the patient as they're receiving their their oxygen. And it's probably good practice regardless that you have a surgical mask over the patient who's getting oxygen by nasal cannula, regardless of the rate that you're providing that oxygen. CPAP, depending on the type of mask you have and the seal that you have around the, the patient's face, will introduce some amount of aerosol generating particles in the back of the ambulance. And it, it's probably really variable, but it's safe to say it's probably pretty risky to the provider. And again, you should make sure there's a actually a surgical mask over your CPAP mask if that is something that your agency is still doing. Whitney mentioned this twice, but I want to make sure nobody misses it. No matter what level of oxygen you're putting on somebody, whether it's a nasal cannula, a high-flow cannula, a non-rebreather, or a CPAP machine, you should place a surgical mask over that as best practice, which will help prevent some of that aerosolization or droplet particles that may escape secondary to this procedure. With regards to high-flow versus non-invasive positive pressure, high-flow is thought to generate a significant amount of aerosolization. Whether or not this is more than your non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is largely going to depend on which type of CPAP machine you have. Italy has had very positive experience using non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in these patients. However, the device that they use is a hood that fits over the entire head with an exhalation port that passes through a viral filter. There are some CPAP machines in the U.S. that have a separate exhalation port which can pass through a viral filter. If you have one of these devices and have a good mass seal on the patient, then the risk of aerosolization is actually reportedly very low. However, the CPAP that we have here in Denver, and that which I believe is used most widely across the U.S. here, is one which vents straight through the nasal bridge to the air, thus causing a significant amount of aerosolization and danger to the provider. Our recommendation has been not to use them unless absolutely necessary. Regardless of which system you are using, remember, wear an appropriate fitting N95 mask to protect yourself from possible aerosolization. Is there any data that helps us predict how far these aerosolized droplets go or how far away it's safe to be? We hear the number six feet a lot, and I don't really understand or know where that comes from. In my mind, I just figured they got that from how deep we bury people. It seems like a lot of this sort of what we understand in terms of transmission is based on research and studies that were actually done in like the 1930s, thinking about droplet sizes and how far large droplets fly when traveling at speeds similar to when you sneeze or cough. Obviously, there's a lot of technology that has changed and a lot of our understanding of things that have changed, but really a lot of this sort of six-foot thing is is still rooted in a lot of that data that came out and a lot of those recommendations that sort of were from the 1930s and then subsequently as we went through sort of the time where TB was a big deal. Who really knows? But that's that's where the six feet came from. So if we can't predict from the patient side of things, in other words, how much virus they're spewing out and what procedures make them spew out more or less, then certainly we should be able to predict how protective the PPE we're wearing is, right? Sure. <laughs> that would be amazing. If we had solid answers on either side of this coin, it would make everybody's job a whole lot easier. <laughs> this is an incredibly difficult topic to study. The majority of the data we have is laboratory data, 
and may not even be applicable to real-world settings. The initial 1930 studies showed a distance of less than three feet being high risk, but we had subsequent more real-world epidemiologic studies during the 2003 SARS coronavirus, which caused a similar but seemingly more deadly, albeit not nearly as widespread, outbreak. These studies showed increased risk with contacts of less than actually 6 to 10 feet. With regards to PPE, there were a significant amount of observational data on disease transmission from this outbreak. Although it is difficult to interpret and all over the map, data from Hong Kong showed no difference between surgical mask and N95 and hospital worker infection rates. But a study from Toronto showed that although both a surgical mask and an N95 mask decreased risk, N95 was slightly better than surgical mask. To just go ahead and make things even more confusing, a study from Vietnam showed no development of infection in healthcare workers, despite some significant non-compliance with wearing any PPE early in the outbreak. So what does this leave us with? The CDC has a great website, which we will link in the show notes. This reviews all the scientific data regarding transmission of infectious disease. But essentially, general expert consensus at this time is that PPE is effective. A surgical mask is good and likely sufficient, but an N95 may be better and should definitely be worn when performing aerosol-generating procedures. To quote the website directly, Concerns about unknown or possible routes of transmission of agents associated with severe disease and no known treatment often result in more extreme prevention strategies than may be necessary. Therefore, recommended precautions could change as the epidemiology of an emerging infection is defined and controversial issues are resolved. One of the things that's come up is the reusing or uh, reprocessing of PPE, specifically N95 masks and gowns and whatnot. I've heard that the military and less fortunate countries and healthcare systems have been doing this with N95 masks for many years. Um, can you talk a little bit about how a repurposing or reusing of PPE process looks from an EMS side of things? The reusing and repurposing of N95s or other PPE has sort of two pieces to it. So there's the one piece of after you've used an N95, is there some sort of process that you can go through to make it safe for somebody to reuse it again as if it's like sort of like new? And the answer to if this practice is effective or not is just we don't know yet. This practice has not been through the vigorous FDA or OSHA testing standards to prove its effectiveness. However, in the absence of data, we have to rely on expert consensus, which is, yeah, this probably is effective. So long as you use an appropriate sanitizing method and the mask barrier stays intact. And if we're faced between the option of no N95 at all because we ran out versus a sanitized N95, well, give me the sanitized N95. Thankfully, although we have prepared for this day, we have not had to implement this plan as of yet at my institution. As for what constitutes an appropriate sanitizing method, well, I'll refer you to the CDC for that answer. I think the other side of it is sort of the reuse of an N95 multiple times during a shift or something like that for multiple patient encounters. And that has also been described in the past. I think it poses really unique risks, especially to pre-hospital providers in that one of the, the highest risk things we do is take off PPE because that's when we're going to basically self-contaminate and, and put ourselves at risk. So 
it can be great if we've got an N95 and a face shield and everything else while we do our aerosol generating procedure and we've protected ourselves and that's great. But then if we're not able to safely take those things off and clean them appropriately and store them and then put them back on again without smearing virus all over our face, which is what we know is probably our greatest source of risk, then we probably haven't done anything good for ourselves or or for our providers. And so, you know, we've walked through this a little bit here in Denver, thinking about how do we instruct pre-hospital providers and ED providers on ways to safely take off their N95, especially store it someplace so that the dirty side stays dirty, it doesn't contaminate the clean side, and then you have the ability to then take it back out of that container and safely put it on your face, I think is really challenging, but super, super important if we're actually going to prevent our providers and ourselves from getting infected. So it sounds like the safety issues come way more from self-contamination and touching that outside or dirty side of the mask or getting that outside dirty part of the mask somehow connected either via your fingers or something else with the inside of the mask. And it's that's way more of a concern than just the literal process of using it more than once. Yes, absolutely. And if we just took practical things away from this, you know, every time before you go to take off your mask, it's cleaning your hands, then you're taking off your mask, you're putting it in a place where you're aware of the dirty side and can then get the mask back out without getting your hands all over the dirty side or getting the dirty side on your face. And then obviously washing your hands before you put that mask back on and then washing your hands again immediately after putting the mask on to sort of make sure that you're decreasing that risk as much as possible. When I learned this at, on the hospital side of things, I became very comfortable with the concept of having to use the same N95 all day and maybe even multiple days in a row. But I also became equally as uncomfortable with my own ability to keep it clean. So I became a lot less worried with, uh, is this sterilized? Is, are we able to clean this? And much more concerned with my own dirtying of the mask. And I think if everyone out there can take that away, I think that can be comforting in some ways, but it, if you're not paying attention to how you're taking your PPE off, it can, it can make things a lot worse. Absolutely. The answer is just wash your hands before you do anything. Let's get back into some protocol changes and medication changes, specifically around nebulizer treatments. A lot of places are discontinuing nebulizer treatments as part of standing orders to prevent aerosolization and exposure to providers? Different places across the country have answered this question differently. One of the things we're seeing much more commonly in the pre-hospital world now are actually MDIs. Meter dosed inhaler. And while this has been a staple of EMT care for a long time, assisting somebody with their home MDI and spacer uh, has probably not been something that we've used a lot at the paramedic level because if you have a NEB, why would you use an MDI? That being said, when used properly, MDIs have been shown to be just as effective as nebulized treatments, and they don't carry the same aerosolization risk as a nebulizer. Here in Denver, we've recently rolled out MDIs, and we also recognize, though, that these are potential for critical shortage, just like all of the other things that we were using more commonly than we used to pre-COVID. So our recommendations associated with who to give treatments to actually sort of take out that group of patients that are mild to moderate asthma that 
will do fine if you just drive them to the hospital, but you'd feel better if you could make them feel better by giving them a treatment. And we're actually discouraging treatment of those patients and instead reserving the MDIs for severe asthma exacerbations that are clearly asthma. Is there now more of a role for IV or IM medications for, say, a condition like asthma? In other words, would we be giving IM epi for an asthmatic? You're a quicker... Um, threshold to go to a magnesium infusion? One of the problems with IM medications is that IM epi is notorious for medication errors and is also notorious for causing problems in patients that aren't sort of straightforward asthma. So, you know, probably once a year we land a COPD or in the ICU with an end STEMI or a ischemic cardiac condition because of the epinephrine that we gave them for what was thought to possibly be related to their reactive airways disease. And so I think while it is a perfect solution for the straightforward patient who's young and healthy and has asthma and their asthma is severe, I think we have to pause and and be cautious a little bit before really being aggressive about expanding the scope of who gets IM medications, specifically IM epinephrine. In other words, continue utilizing IM epi like you normally would. As Whitney talks about, the vast majority of reactive airway disease patients can wait the short transport ride until the hospital in order to safely be administered a breathing treatment. But if you have a patient who is not moving any air whatsoever, who under normal circumstances you would have given a NEB and quickly escalated to IM epi if not improving for fear of impending respiratory arrest, then this patient still gets IM epi and possibly IV magnesium, despite not having NEBS available to give her. No practice change here with regards to these medications. But as Whitney warned, you always have to be cognizant of the risks. If they're older with a history of coronary artery disease or equivalent risk factors, you have to think hard about weighing the risk to benefit ratios with IM epi. A lot of the talk um, about this disease process is moving towards an early intubation strategy, which brought up the question of should we be intubating early in the pre-hospital setting? You know, the treatment to this disease is oxygen. Certainly there are medications that they are trying in the hospital to, to minimize the disease or help recovery from the disease. But as far as from the frontline care of a patient with COVID, the treatment is oxygen. And so understanding how we dose our oxygen, I think, is actually really, really important. And so I think people are comfortable with sort of this progression from nasal cannula to a non-rebreather and and sort of, you know, oh, yeah, you got to have 10 liters not on your non-rebreather in order for that to actually be functional. But the idea of sort of early progression to intubation is one that we talked about a lot and I think just needs to be seen with a little bit of caution. And certainly in practice, if we have patients that are doing okay on 10 liters non-rebreather, while that would seldom be something that I felt really good about uh, <laughs> prior to all of this, if somebody is sustaining or right there and and you can safely watch them or observe them, it's, it's maybe not always pulling that trigger to go straight to intubation, in part because of risk to the patient, in part to because of use of a ventilator, which is a thing that is in short supply in a lot of places. And also because the the sort of this idea of aerosol generation and whatnot. Certainly in places where there is RSI in the field, I think that changes the conversation a little bit. 
and certainly referring to sort of if you if you have RSI, make sure you're really clear about what your medical direction guidelines have been related to that. But if there's not RSI, sort of the risk of meddling with the back of somebody's throat and cough and everything else, I think should be treated with a lot of caution. If we're completely stuck in the back of the ambulance and we absolutely have to intubate, what are the best practices for a safe and as clean as possible intubation? Well, I don't have, you know, steps one through five of exactly what you should do because it's obviously going to vary a lot based on what your resources are in your in your agency. I think being really thoughtful ahead of time about what things you're going to need and also remembering sort of your backup plans, knowing that a lot of times these patients, their O2 sats drop pretty quickly and you don't have a lot of wiggle room. So rather than thinking about, oh, maybe I'll take a couple more looks before I move on to a supraglottic airway or something like that, making sure that your supraglottic is is close at hand and, and you're ready to use it. I think the other pieces of this to consider are sort of recognizing where your greatest risks are as a provider. And those greatest risks are as you're bagging the patient, um, especially if you're unable to get a good seal. This is important to recognize. The biggest change to your practice of airway management is going to be recognizing where your risks are and taking steps to protect yourself as a provider. If you are forced to intubate, you will want to assure that you are wearing appropriate PPE. At the minimum, this includes an N95 or equivalent respirator, goggles, and ideally a face shield in addition to gloves and gown. You'll want to make extra sure that you have a good seal with your BVM. And if you carry viral filters, add this to the end of your mask or tube. RSI is preferable as it will paralyze the patient and prevent their ability to cough or aerosolize and has been shown to increase first pass success. If you have video laryngoscopy, that should be first line as your face does not need to be as close to the patient while performing the procedure. You'll want as few providers as absolutely necessary within six feet of the patient during the procedure. This means being very conscious that you have all of your equipment ready before you begin. If you need to bag either before or in between attempts, some have described using an eye gel or equivalent supraglottic device for this purpose, as they have less theoretical potential for aerosolization than BVM. In fact, some agencies are recommending supraglottics as first line instead of intubation during this pandemic to prevent the amount of time spent managing the patient's airway or performing things like bag valve mask. As always, seek out guidance from your local medical control for best practice in your area. Can you talk more about what a viral filter is and where to put it? A viral filter or a HEPA filter is something that has become part of everybody's common language these days, it seems like, and everybody wants to know where it is and can I bag if I don't have one? Can I can I care for this patient if there's not a viral filter in the room? And uh, and so it is a filter that's attachable to the ET tube that essentially filters out uh, the majority of the viral particles. None of these things are perfect, which I think is important to remember. And it's also important to remember for people that are doing critical care transport or doing more work in the emergency department or in the hospital all ventilators actually have a filter. And so you could easily have a patient on a vent that doesn't have a filter in place that you can see outside that is also doing the same job. But yes, the benefit of the HEPA filter is that it is small. It can be in lots of different places. And so what 
we recommend is that that HEPA filter goes directly on the end of the tube and then your end-tidal uh, waveform capnography follows that so that when you disconnect all of that, you still have the filter that is protecting providers sort of in between the tube and the outside world. Are there any benefits for IV fluids or steroids in the disease process called COVID? So there's a lot of opinions that are circulating out there regarding this specifically. Opinions. Opinions. Based on some amount of information that we've gathered from what is really a small number of patients that we have been able to look at scientifically that have experienced COVID. It's hard to know the right answer. I think in patients that have obvious confounders with asthma or COPD, there probably isn't harm and might be benefit in getting steroids on board for them because we know part of their disease process is indeed helped by steroids. I'm not sure that we have information related to COVID that says that patients are benefited by any means with steroids. And there's maybe some markers that they're harmed by it. Whitney is actually referring to a systematic review of observational studies looking at steroids in the 2003 SARS outbreak. These demonstrated no mortality difference but increased time to viral load clearance and increased complications such as avascular necrosis, psychosis, and diabetes. Subsequent systematic review of observational studies looking at steroids and influenza pneumonia and MERS found an increase in mortality. None of these studies are terribly robust, but for now, the CDC and WHO are recommending against steroids unless you think the patient has an underlying medical condition that would likely benefit from steroids. In terms of fluids, you know, we have, we have all become very familiar with the importance of fluids in sepsis and severe sepsis. COVID as a disease functions differently in a lot of ways than just sort of your straightforward sepsis. I think there's arguments for a lot of insensible losses associated with sort of work of breathing that probably put these patients' volume down sometimes. There's also a significant concern about myocardial involvement with patients who have COVID, and they probably don't do as well with fluids when you're thinking about cardiac dysfunction. One of the best things and one of the best principles related to all of this is to not forget about the patient that's in front of you. We know a lot about sort of basic pathophysiology of disease. And if the patient looks dry, if they're hypotensive, they probably benefit in some part from some fluids. If they look and sound exactly like an asthma exacerbation, they probably benefit in part from some steroids. And on the back end of this, we will probably know a whole lot more that we wish we knew right now. Is our state, which is Colorado, or any other states that you know of, looking to expand or extend the paramedic scope of practice to help the response to COVID-19? Here in Colorado, the main thing that I'm aware of that was expanded is paramedic ability to perform the swabs to test for COVID, which, because of testing limitations has not actually been used extensively, to my knowledge, at least not here in Denver, potentially in other communities it has been. You know, there's always talk also of if we open up alternate care sites, is there a role for paramedics there? And probably sort of in a vacuum, yes, absolutely. Give me a paramedic or a EMT any day in a patient care scenario. 
But the reality is when you're opening up alternate care sites because you have so many patients that are overflowing your hospitals, you're probably also at a point where you're overwhelming your EMS system and there are probably not as many paramedics or EMTs out there that are available to be expanding their scope to work elsewhere because we want them in the streets. There's a lot of stuff on the internet about proning. And of course, our listeners want to know, should they be proning in the ambulance? In the same way that I think people have been frustrated that the only treatment for COVID is oxygen, certainly been reaching for sort of other ways in which we can help these patients. And so, you know, for a while, proning has been used. And and just to be clear, proning is when you basically put the patient prone on the bed rather than supine, which is sort of our usual practice, with the idea that you're helping them recruit part of their lung volume that has been lost because of ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. So this has been studied in ARDS for the past handful of years. 2014 is when some of those guidelines and recommendations started really coming out. And those are based on patients with severe respiratory distress. Benefit was found in patients that are ventilated on a ventilator and are prone for up to 16 hours a day and sometimes longer. So it's not like just putting the patient on their stomach for a couple minutes or a couple hours during the day makes a huge benefit in their care, but with a very specific protocol of placing the patient on their stomach and using appropriate ventilator settings and and whatnot, they've seen improvement in patients with severe ARDS. Of course, now that we have increasing number of patients that have this ARDS process going on of various severity, uh, we're looking to see do less severe patients benefit from proning. And in the hospital, they're certainly trying that for patients who are awake, who aren't on ventilators. But like most things, we don't really know for sure. As far as applying that in the back of an ambulance, I think based on what we do know about proning, it's probably not beneficial in the back of an ambulance. You know, even if you are rural and you have a long transport time, you're not getting anywhere close to the 16 hours that they studied in the prior evaluations of proning for ARDS. And we also don't know if it benefits people that are not severe in terms of their respiratory status. And so I think the downsides of trying to prone somebody in the ambulance, which are limitations to being able to manage them if they acutely decompensate, the fact that the the ambulance gurneys or prams are certainly not set up for us to be comfortably transporting people or safely transporting people that are on their stomach instead of on their back, I think there's just way more risk than there is even potential benefit for proning. The idea behind proning is that we have dependent areas of our lungs where fluid and inflammation collects with gravity, thus collapsing portions of our lung. When we prone, we take those previously dependent posterior portions of our lungs and we flip them so they are up and no longer dependent, thus shifting the fluid in an attempt to recruit areas of collapsed lung. But Whitney is absolutely correct. A systemic review found no difference in proning in ARDS unless proning duration was greater than 12 hours and the ARDS was moderate to severe. Thus, this is unlikely to make any clinical significance in the back of our ambulance. Currently, there is no data to support proning in COVID, but given its proposed pathophysiology similar to that of ARDS, 
it has been proposed as a treatment strategy. And some people have even taken this to prone awake patients in an attempt to stave off intubation. These protocols, some consist of changing position every two hours. But again, there's no evidence for this outside of anecdotal reports. And the risks of not being able to appropriately manage your patients during transport probably far outweigh any theoretical benefits during your relatively short transport time, given that the data that we do have has suggested it's not helpful unless it's greater than 12 hours. Do we know anything about how long or how well this virus survives on things like clothing or hair or plastic or anything else? So we don't know well. I think there was a New England Journal article that was published a couple of weeks ago that looked at uh, certain amounts of virus that lived on different substances for different periods of time. Not surprisingly, plastic and hard surfaces like that, it lived up to 72 hours in some amount of quantity. Again, there are lots of questions, right? Because we don't know how much quantity you need to get infected. We don't really know. And then sort of diminishing amounts of time that it survived on cardboard versus aerosolized in the air. And I don't remember that they looked specifically at clothes or hair. I think the most important takeaways from that, since there are so many questions around it, is just as we're thinking about protecting ourselves, especially in the back of an ambulance, to just assume that there's probably virus and virus particles on every single part of the ambulance. I know a lot of places are using aeroclaves and different cleaning bombs that they put off inside the ambulance to sort of minimize that. But especially in between calls, especially as you're sort of going about your daily business, I think the more we can be aware of the fact that there's probably virus in most of the places, especially in an ambulance that we're touching, and just, you know, it goes back to those basics, the hand hygiene, et cetera. Whitney is referring to a New England Journal article that was published March 17, 2020. The study found that the virus is viable for up to 72 hours on plastic, 48 hours on stainless steel, 24 hours on cardboard, and 4 hours on copper. It was also detectable in the air for up to 3 hours. However, they did not look at things like hair or clothing. Whitney, I really want to thank you for coming on today and and talking with us and answering a lot of these questions in such a difficult time. It seems like a lot of the answers to these questions, a lot of the honest answers to these questions are we just don't know yet. But do you mind just summarizing what we do know and what we can do? Your point is a great one, is that if we're honest, we don't know. And we're all just doing the best we can uh, in this challenging time. But I think there are really important take-homes that are easy to miss in the setting of this barrage of information that's out there trying to point us in some direction. And so I think the basic tenets of pre-hospital care still remain the same and are still really important. This is a disease that's treated by oxygen. So BLS care first and be really good at your BLS care. Assume that COVID is everywhere, that it's Um, On all the surfaces, assume every patient probably has it. And so do your part by being really diligent and thoughtful about your PPE and how you use it, as well as protecting your partners by being good stewards of your hand hygiene and everything else. And then also just keeping your ambulance clean. I think it's important to remember to take care of your patients. Do no harm. If they're sick, take them to the hospital. And, and treat the patient that's in front of you. Don't worry about treating the pandemic. <laughs>